missed you guys last week. Was on the East Coast doing a thing that Ann and I do annually with some friends from our home church. I know you were in good hands with Pastor Josh, though. I think you know, I hope you know, that Pastor Josh is part of the board of this church, along with me and Rob, Ben Scoville and Denny Fitzroy, and then from outside, uh, at least outside from the day-to-day of Calvary, Wichita, Pastor Josh and Pastor Ed. And, and I value those two guys immensely because they know us. Pastor Ed especially knows me. He's known me almost since I was a believer. So they know us and they know our DNA and they know the things that God is doing here, but they also have that outside perspective because they're not with us week over week. And so they, they can come in and say, this doesn't seem authentic. This doesn't seem like who you are or, wow, this is very much who you are and God is being so faithful. And I know that Josh was encouraged by his time here and the people that I've spoken to were certainly encouraged by him. So I'm grateful for that. It's good to have brothers to call on. Acts 20, I was, like I said, spending time with with friends from my home church. And, you know, you you can't help but think about how you came to know those people and be part of that community. And I was thinking about who I was when I first stumbled into that Calvary Chapel in New Jersey by God's grace. And one of the things God did is he started putting me back together is he had me listening to just a ton of teaching. I was at the church two or three times a week you know, for Bible study, but even when I wasn't at church, hour after hour of cassette tapes, I wore out two Sony Walkmans, just, just cranking through studies that I missed and retreats and conferences that I happened or sermon series that, that, that were taught before I joined the church. And, and it struck me, it's funny, I'm in full-time ministry today, obviously. I don't listen to as much teaching in a month as I did in a week, probably as I did some days back then, not, not even close. But I remember in those days, as I'm trying to get my head on straight, as God is trying to get my walk back on track, listening to those hours and hours of teaching, there was a story that kept coming up again and again in different texts and different pastors and in different contexts, they, they, they kept hearing this story, which happens sometimes. You know, because Calvary's kind of a closed ecosystem, so one person will share an anecdote at a, at a, at a conference or will use an illustration at a retreat, and everyone there, oh, I gotta take that and remember that and use that at my home church. And, and then more people are like, oh, I've got to use that in my home Bible study, or I'm going to use that in the men's study, and that would really fit over here. So I mean, it, so it happens like that sometimes. So that kind of thing was going on. Or, or maybe it was just God, and it was none of that. It was just God wanted me to meditate on this one thing and kept bringing it back around, because God does that sometimes. Or maybe it's both. Anyway, the, the, the story was this. Communist soldiers discovered their illegal Bible study. They were meeting at night, hoping that no one would notice the, the, the people coming in ones and twos and, and small groups making their way to their home, not all at once, so as to not attract attention. But the soldiers had discovered their study, and as the pastor was reading from the Bible, they burst in, and they shouted threats, they brandished weapons, and the officer, the leader of this group of soldiers, pointed his gun at the pastor's head and said, hand me your Bible. The pastor handed it over. He threw it on the ground. 
And he, he glared at this, this small group, this home church, and he said, we'll let you go on one condition. You have to spit on, on your Bible. You have to spit on your holy book. And one by one, the officer would put his gun to somebody's head and say, if you spit, you can leave. And so there was a man who, who got up and he knelt down next to the Bible and he said, Father, forgive me. And he spat on the Bible and they let him go. And there was an old woman who could barely walk over and she couldn't even kneel down. She just bent over and she couldn't even get enough spit to really spit, but a couple drops and then that was enough and she was allowed to leave. But then there was a young girl, a teenager, overcome with her love for Jesus. She knelt down and she grabbed the book to herself and she said, Father, forgive them. And the officer pulled the trigger. And the thing that the Lord was impressing upon me, and I didn't understand it at first. I, I, was, I was too overwhelmed with the drama of it all. But the thing that I think that the Lord was, was bringing the story around and around and around again to impress upon my heart is that following Jesus costs. And I was wrestling with that at the time. Following Jesus costs. Jesus paid the price for us to come to him. Jesus paid the price on the cross for our forgiveness. Jesus paid it all. He paid the price for our sin. God's wrath for every transgression that every one of us has ever committed was poured out upon him 2,000 years ago. And he said to Talestai, paid in full, and it was. Jesus paid the price for our salvation, but sooner or later, all of us, every one of us, will pay a price to follow him, and some will pay the ultimate price. But here's the thing that the Lord showed me later about the story. You know, sometimes, sometimes there's layers upon layers. There's dimensions within dimensions. The thing that took me a long time to grasp was I'm not sure that that girl's decision was really all that hard. It was an important decision. Dramatic and horrifying and all of the things that it was. But was it difficult for her? Because really it comes down to a moment, right? A moment in which you deny Christ or embrace Christ. Because really that's what they were asking that group of people to do. Deny Christ. Spit on the Bible. Say that it's nothing. Say that he's nothing or embrace Christ, knowing that that means that moments later you'll be standing face-to-face -face with Christ. I think most of us would make that choice, wouldn't we? To live as Christ, to die as gain? One instant, one moment, one choice. Deny Christ, die for Christ. For a person of faith, I don't know that that's that hard. What I think is harder is what we see Paul doing again and again in the book of Acts and in his epistles, and what we're going to see Paul choosing to do again and again in our text this morning, which is live for Christ. That's what we're going to talk about as we turn to Acts 20. Lord, we pray, as we always do, that you would illuminate your word, that you would be the teacher, and I would stay out of your way. Lord, we're different people coming from different places, different burdens different circumstances. You know each one, and none of us is here by accident, all by a divine appointment. And so, Lord, we pray that your Spirit would speak to each heart 
Impart to us the things that you brought us here to glean and teach us, Lord, to how you would have us take them away and apply them to our lives. We ask in your holy name, amen. Acts 20, Paul and his gang are on their way to Jerusalem. They want to get there for Pentecost. It's the end of Paul's third missionary journey, and when we left off a couple weeks ago, they'd made it as far as Miletus. A little bit of a layover there, so Paul says, hey, get the elders from Ephesus, because as long as we've got time, there's a few more things I want to say to them. I've got some final thoughts to impart to them, and we've spent a couple weeks unpacking those thoughts. A couple, three weeks, we've been looking at those words, those observations, those exhortations. And one of the things that Paul says, and it's not really a, a, a main thing that he says so much as just something he says on the way to getting where he's going. Look at Acts 20, verse 22. Paul says, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except, I know this, the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Well, let's keep going. None of these things move me, verse 24, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And we said at the time, and it's worth noting again this morning because we are off for a week, Paul is not saying, in saying that, Paul's not saying, woe is me. And he's not saying, hey, look at me at this big thing that I'm doing. He's saying, guys, pretty soon you won't see me. And you need to get ready for that. I'm going to Jerusalem, not necessarily because I want to, but because I have to, because God's called me to. I've got every reason to believe it won't be the most fun I've ever had at a party, but I'm utterly convinced it's important because nothing in God's economy isn't. There's nothing trivial in God's economy. God has called me to it. I must do it. So guys, this is Paul's point. Guys, I'm really leaving. And you're going to have to really step up. And so when Paul is done with that final exhortation, we've covered that before, right? That was review. When he was done, verse 36, when he'd said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now with that in mind, especially the trains, chains, tribulations, bound in the spirit part in mind, let's move a little bit further down the road with Paul really a little bit further down the coast, Acts 21, it came to pass that when we departed from them, Luke writes, literally when we torn ourselves away from them, they didn't want to let them go. Running a straight course, we came to Kaz. So we got a map. Kaz is with the K here, it's with the C in your New King James. It's the same place. It's the birthplace of Hippocrates. 40 miles or so, an island to the south about a day's journey. The following day to Rhodes, another island and another 50 miles to the south. Rhodes was the home of the Colossus, big, huge statue of Helios, the sun god. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. From there to Ptera, port city in Lycia, at which point they shift to a larger vessel because if they keep hugging the coast, it's going to take forever to get to Jerusalem, and they're trying to get there by Pentecost. So they say, let's get in a bigger ship that can actually cross the Mediterranean. And finding a ship, verse 2, we sailed over to Phoenicia. We went aboard and set sail. I'm sorry, finding a ship sailing over, a ship that was planning on taking that route. We went aboard and set sail so that they could make that journey in three, four, five days at the most rather than 10 days or more going port to port along the coast. When we sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left. That's Cyprus, even though it's not labeled. 
I'm sure Paul wondered how Barnabas was doing. That's the last place we knew that Barnabas was in Acts 15. They sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. Tyre, a city of much biblical prophecy. When we get to Ezekiel, we'll have fun studying Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo, and finding disciples, verse 4, we stayed there seven days. So another layover. And during those seven days, they told Paul, the disciples that he found in Tyre, told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. What do you mean up? Jerusalem is to the south. It is, but remember, Jerusalem is a city on a hill. You always go up to Jerusalem. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Now, this is important. They didn't say, Paul, God doesn't want you to go. They didn't say, Paul, God says you shouldn't go. How do we know? A, we just read in Acts 20, Paul already told us that God was calling him to Jerusalem, Acts 20, 24. And because they went. When we'd come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. If they thought that that's what God was saying, they wouldn't have done it. When they told Paul not to go, it was just an expression of their love. They weren't saying, God says this is a bad idea. They're saying that God says you're going to be hurt and we don't want you to be hurt. Paul says that's great. Thing is, it's not about me. So verse 5, they departed and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. Much like we prayed for Ethan. Well, I wasn't here. You prayed for Ethan last week as he left for 10th hour, which he did yesterday. And there was another group that, that went to the airport and, and, and prayed him out yesterday. Or maybe they just wanted to make sure that he got on the plane. But, <laughs> but that, that's how we should part for one another. When God calls us out, because he does, God calls people to places and he calls people for seasons. We should, we should embrace and, 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 and we should reassure each other that, that, that we're parting as friends, as brothers, that we'll be family forever and we should pray for one another. It's so disappointing when when people leave without giving us that chance. But let's keep going, because Paul keeps going. When we'd taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we were finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemy. Now this, they could have traveled over water, over land, scripture isn't clear, but 30 miles to the south, another day's journey. We greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day, because Paul can't go anywhere without fellowshipping. Which, by the way, I should have, I know I'm just reading and rambling here, but, but um, I should have gotten a picture. Two brothers from Calvary Prescott, Prescott, Arizona, were here on Friday. They just showed up. And they were two of the team that came from Calvary Prescott and did the, the total church makeover 13 years ago. Um, friends of Pastor Al that he invited up. And they painted, they built this platform, they built the sound booth, they did all kinds, they hung these lamps, they did all kinds of crazy things. And... Uh, they said, you know, we were in the area and we had to come by. The, the Lord just compelled us. We needed to see what was going on with that fellowship that we spent that week with. And we spent a couple, an hour and a half together at least. It was just wonderful telling stories and, and, and talking about Jesus. And see, that, that was Paul's heart too. So verse 8, on the next day we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. So this is Philip from Acts chapter 8. Philip, uh, who met the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I understand the scroll of Isaiah unless somebody explains it to me? So Philip explained it to him. And then Philip's raptured up and he's dropped somewhere else. And the last time we see Philip, he's headed to Caesarea. 20 years later, apparently, he's still there. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. 
We've encountered Agabus before. He was the guy in Acts 11 who prophesied a worldwide famine. And the famine, of course, came to happen. So he was a credible source. He was a true prophet, a man anointed by God. And when he got there, he prophesied, because that's what prophets do. When he'd come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So it's an object lesson. It's a, it's a living out illustration, the, kind of like the one that God had Jeremiah do when, uh, Wednesday in our study when he said, Jeremiah, go through all the city and see if you can find an honest man. We'll see Ezekiel do that when we get to Ezekiel. It happens frequently in God's word. God does that, has, has people do this. Paul, this is what will happen if you go to Jerusalem. Visual aid, Paul. At which point, Paul's friends all break down. They, 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 their, their resolve collapses. Luke and the others with them, they change their minds. When we'd heard those things, both we and those from the place pleaded with them not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul, I think you've got this wrong. Jerusalem really is a bad idea. So how about let's not go? How about you especially don't go? What changed? We don't know for sure. Was Agabus particularly convincing? Did, was, was his reputation as a prophet, was that what sold it? Was the object lesson compelling? It could, could have been any of those things, or it could have been the sheer repetition, right? All the way back in Miletus, Paul was saying he testifies in every city. So by the time they got there, this was already a theme. It wasn't a new idea. They'd heard it multiple times. And they'd heard it multiple times since then, in Tyre, in Caesarea, over and over. And maybe the over and overness wore them down. But it didn't wear Paul down. Verse 13, Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying the will of the Lord be done. You can find commentators, respected commentators, a couple of my favorites actually, who want to tell you that this is where Paul blows it. God warned him, warned him again, warned him a three time, a third time. Paul flat out disobeys. There's people who believe that, teach that. I don't think they have anything to substantiate it. I think it's an interesting idea, but there's nothing to support it. Luke just said, when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. Luke agreed, going to Jerusalem was God's will. And if you rewind through those other warnings, I don't want to take the time, but look on your own. Nowhere does, does God say don't go. And, and Paul says, Acts 20, 24, God told him to go. So what are we looking at? We're looking at warnings. People saying, yeah, with divine insight, but people saying, Paul, this is what God told me would happen if you go, and that doesn't sound like fun, so I don't think you should go. I think you should reconsider. And Paul says, yeah, please man, please God. That's not a choice. Paul doesn't reconsider. And so, 15, 20 minutes later, however long we've been in this study, that's what I'm saying when, I, when I'm saying maybe it's harder to live for Christ than to die for Christ. And I say that not wanting to take anything away from, from those who do give their lives, who do lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel. It's a glorious thing. Special crowns in heaven, Scripture says, for those who are martyred for the name of Jesus. But without in any way diminishing the blood of the martyrs, 
I would still submit that what Paul did, what we see him doing in these verses and verses like them, is arguably harder. Not better necessarily, but harder. Why? Look at the sheer number of off-ramps he had. The sheer number of exits on the highway. The sheer number of opportunities God gave him to count the cost and change his mind. Dying for Christ is huge. But living for Christ, choosing Christ in the face of adversity, choosing to live willing to die for Christ, again and again and again, that's not small. So how do we do that? How do we live for Christ? How do we live in obedience to Christ? Because we want to, don't we? Anyone not want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Even before that, we want to be able to say with Paul, I've fought the good fight, 2 Timothy 4. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And I know there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. Because I was faithful to his calling. How do we do that? No magic recipe. No secret formula, because Jesus doesn't do recipes or formulas. But I think that Paul, here and elsewhere, gives us three ideas, three Three key things worth keeping in mind as we sojourn through this world seeking to live for Christ. First one, know your purpose. Know your purpose, your mission, your ministry. Whatever you want to call it, Paul had it. Paul had a purpose in his life. He had it because God gave it to him. He wasn't confused about what it was. Acts 9.15, God says, Paul is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name between, before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, and I'll show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. Day one, Paul, you're saved. That's great. Get up off the ground. Here's your mission. Here's your ministry. Here's my mandate. From this day forward, here's your purpose in this world. First time I read that, first, I don't know, however many years I read that, my response was, whoa, that's a heavy burden to put on a guy. Except I've come to realize, no, it's not. It's, it's actually a wonderful gift. Because every step along the way, every step from that point forward, every step faced with a thousand and one possibilities, thousand and one options, thousand and one things that he could do, Paul had a ruler to measure them against. A lot of things I could do, does this line up with what God has told me I should do, I'm supposed to do? Is this, is this the kind of thing that an apostle to the Gentiles would do? God says, Paul, i got a job for you. In fact, it's a job I picked out especially for you. I actually prepared it uniquely and personally for you. And I did it even before I invented the world. Before I laid the foundation of the world, I knew the good works. I was preparing them for you to walk in. I said that these were, were Paul's ideas, and this is. It's Ephesians 2.10. God prepared good works for us, each of us, to walk in. And I don't think that's intimidating, at least not anymore. It seems that way at first, but when you stare at it, it's liberating, isn't it? If I'm Paul, that means I don't need to figure out what the best thing to do is, what the right thing to do is. I just have to do the thing that God has given me to do. I just have to obey. Worth noting for Paul, that was different things at different times. 
for Paul and probably for us. His purpose, God's purpose for him, wasn't expressed the same way. Paul didn't live it out the same way from season to season. There were times that Paul traveled and times he stayed in one place. There were times that his primary ministry was doing the work of an evangelist. There were other times that he was a teacher equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. There were times he was supported by the church. There were times that he made tents. Having one purpose didn't mean he only and always did only one thing. What it meant is he never had to wonder if he was doing the right thing. Having a purpose, knowing our purpose, makes that calculus simpler. Because anytime we're faced with a choice, with a, a, a decision, the world is going to weigh in and tell us what the world thinks, and our friends are going to speak up and tell us what they think, and our flesh is certainly going to express itself and let its wants and desires be known. But if I know my purpose, it's easier to remember what matters is Jesus. Not the world, not my friends, not my flesh. But what has Jesus told me I'm here to do? What has he called me to do? What's the ministry he's given me? What's the purpose he has for me? Do you know your purpose? Your mission, your ministry? I thank God every day I know mine. I was talking to friends from New Jersey this weekend. They said, what's ministry in Kansas like? Is being a senior pastor hard? Nah. <laughs> It, it seriously is the hardest thing I've ever done. And I don't say that lightly. I've done some hard things. It's the hardest thing I've ever done, and I don't say that lightly, but I don't say it resentfully either. I say it gratefully because I know that I know that I know I'm supposed to be here. I know that I know that God called me here, which means I know that I know God will meet me here as long as I'm obedient. If I'm where God called me, doing what he's called me to do, if I'm pursuing the purpose he's given me, he will meet me. Strengthen me, empower me. Comfort me if I need it. Rebuke me if I need it. The one thing he won't do is abandon me. If I start to freelance, that's a different story. If I go, go my own way, do my own thing, I better be able to pull it off in my own strength because God's going to be over here saying, let me know when you're done. <laughs> let me know how that turns out. This is going to be fun to watch. If I go my own way and do my own thing, I better be able to pull it off in my own strength because with God's purpose comes God's power. If I do things serving my own purpose, that becomes my problem. Doesn't mean it's still not tempting. It's tempting to go our own way because pursuing God's purpose costs. Pursuing God's purpose will be hard. It has to be hard. That's how he's glorified. He's glorified when the only possible way we'll succeed is by depending on him. So yeah, going our own way will always look easier. Might even be easier. Won't be better. And it might not even be easier. Because again, outside of God's purpose, I don't have his power. Outside of God's purpose, I don't have his presence, at least not the same way. Outside of God's purpose, I don't have his peace. 
And I leave his joy behind. No wonder Paul rebukes his friends in verse 13. What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? He understood his choice. His choice was go to Jerusalem with God or go away from Jerusalem without God. That's not a choice. And having a purpose, knowing his purpose, helped Paul see that. What's your purpose? Or at least what's your current understanding of it? I'm sure Paul gained perspective and clarity over the years as he served, as he obeyed. And he had seasons, again, of doing different things in pursuit of it. But from the beginning, he had a mission. From day one as a Christian, he knew his purpose. What's yours? And if you say, I don't know, can I, can I push you a little bit? Can I, can I challenge you? Because I don't think we should settle for I don't know. I think God wants us to know. Not every detail, not every twist and turn. If we knew all of the details, we'd be dangerous to ourselves and others. But from the beginning, Paul knew who he was. And he had a pretty good understanding of what God had put him on the earth to do, what God saved him to do. And I think we can too. So let me ask again, who has God made you, saved you to be? And what has God shown you about what he has for you? Maybe not the details, but the, big, the outline, the big picture, the general direction. I think the key to knowing is asking. I think the key to knowing our purpose is being willing to ask the question. It's what Paul did. Just before God told him, hey, Paul, here's your mission. Apostle of the Gentiles, witness before kings and, and Israel, suffer many things. Right before God said, Paul, here's your mission, Paul asked, Acts 9, verse 6, Lord, what do you want me to do? And God answered. And that makes perfect sense to me. I don't think God created us to hide from us. Everything I read in Scripture says that God made me and came after me and saved me to have a relationship with me. God wants to be in fellowship with us. James tells us, James 1.5, Let he who lacks wisdom ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Same thing here. If we lack, we should ask. I think we get to ask. I think we should ask, God, what's my purpose? What am I here to do? What do you have for me? I think we have to ask believing. James says that too. Ask in faith without doubting. Ask believing that the God who made us is willing to speak to us. Ask deciding that when God speaks, that we're going to obey. Decide before we know what God has for us to do, that we're going to do what he has for us. Or why should he tell us? We need to ask, decide, and God, when I hear from you, whatever it is, I'm going to do it. Because otherwise, why should he tell us? We need to ask deciding that whatever God directs us to do is the very best place for us, and it's the place that he's going to meet us, which means that it's the very best place for us. We need to ask believing. We need to ask deciding. We need to ask trusting. And, and that probably means suspending judgment and not evaluating God's choices. God, are you sure? God, have you thought about? God, I think you're overlooking. No, not second-guessing, but trusting that God knows me and wants what's best for me. Trusting that if in this season, God says, you're a mom, that's your ministry. You're a mom, be a mom, love your kids, pour into them, be Jesus to them. If God has said that's your purpose, don't let anyone put you on a guilt trip about it. 
You know, you're a liberated woman who don't need no man. You need to be out in the workforce. Not unless God says so. If God says you're a mom, be a mom. If God says, hey, you're working a job and that's your ministry, don't let anybody lean on you, you should really, you know, you should be a pastor, you should be a missionary, you should be full-time for the Lord. No, if God says, no, this is a season where you're working a job, then that job is your ministry. And let that workplace be your mission field. I've told the story before of my best friend from school got saved a little while after I did, and I, I tried everything to convince him to be a youth pastor. And he said, that's not my purpose, that's not my calling. God has sent me as a, as a missionary to this to this." financial sector. And he said, I'm the only Christian I know. At my workplace, anywhere I go, I'm the only Christian here. If people don't hear the gospel from me, if they don't see Jesus in me, where are they going to get it? Don't tell me what my purpose is. God has told me what my purpose is. My daughter's back at school. When she graduates this spring, she's probably going to go on to more school. She's called. Her purpose is, is, is to pursue academia. She wants to mix it up with the, the Theo bros. And I'm so tempted to lay a guilt trip on her. We need you at Calvary. Because I like having her around, but also she's incredibly valuable. She can do anything in the church. But before I left, I told her, hey, when I get weak, don't let me put a guilt trip on you. You know your purpose. And it's not for me to tell you that, that you're wrong. And I could keep going with examples with people and purposes, but the point is, ask God to show you yours. Because it makes living for Christ easier. It's easier to decide, is this something that God has for me? This opportunity, this ministry, is this something that has for me? It's easier if I already know what my purpose is. It's easier to test something if I already know, this is my mission. Does this fit? Let's keep going. I said that Paul had three things for us. Took a lot of time on the first. If you're looking at your watch, don't worry. We're going to take less time on the second and even less time on the third. Faster we get behind, the more time we have to catch up. <laughs> First is purpose. Second, practices. Spiritual disciplines, if you want to call them that. Instructions that God has given to every one of us to help us live godly lives. We can go fast because we know this, most of us. Practices that we're all called to as believers. Consistent prayer. Daily time in the Word. Using our gifts to serve faithfully using the resources that God has given us to bless others, sharing our faith openly, confessing sin regularly. There's probably more, but that's a representative list, right? Why do I bring these things up in this context? Two reasons. The first is doing those things in and of themselves is living for Christ. What did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. Those are commandments. Obeying every one of them glorifies him. Obeying every one of them also protects us. And obeying every one of them makes it easier to follow God in other things that are not explicit commandments. If we're in the habit of obeying God in the things that are clear and black and white, it'll be easier to obey God in the gray. Discipline begets discipline. Here's another thing. Relationship begets relationship. Why was Paul so ready to press on to Jerusalem? Even when, when he was warned about it, even when his friends advised against it, it's because he was doing these things. He was a person of prayer. I'm not going to go chapter and verse. I, I don't think that anyone is going to question. If, if, if you doubt these things, I can show you. But I think we agree. Paul was a person of prayer. And so he was proving himself daily in prayer, that God was real, that he was close, 
that he wasn't just an idea. He was a person and a friend. Paul was a person of the word. He was daily in scripture, reminding himself of who Jesus was, closer than a brother, able and willing, laid his life down. Paul was consistently serving. So he wasn't just reading that God was powerful. He was seeing. God was consistently proving through Paul's ministry that he was powerful, that God wasn't limited by Paul's weaknesses. Paul was faithful in supporting the church. It's a big reason why he was going to Jerusalem, reminding himself as he did that the Christian life isn't about keeping, it's about giving. It's not about saving, it's about sacrificing. Paul's all about sharing his faith because every time he did, he reminded himself that he was part of something even bigger. He was part of the, uh, uh, God's overarching mission to evacuate the planet. He was diligent about confessing sin because sin reminds us that we get to find forgiveness. Why? Because of the cross. Confession reminds us that we have the love of God. Why? Because Jesus died in our place. Confession reminds us how important it is to remove everything hindering that love relationship that Jesus died to purchase. So that we can clearly hear from God. Let's add one more to the list. Living in community. Being an active, consistent fellowship. The way that Paul did every single place he went. We saw that this morning. Every opportunity he had. Paul seized the opportunity to be in fellowship with other believers. For lots of reasons, but whatever his reasons, every time he did, he reminded himself he was something bigger, part of something bigger than himself. A family greater than just he himself with his Bible, a family greater than he, even he and his, his missionary team. He was part of a family that had access to greater resources, greater love, greater lift, gifting than God had given him and his team. And see, because Paul was consistent in all of these practices, because he was in the habit of living for God, and because he was in fellowship, daily fellowship, with the God he was living for, when God said, hey, here's another thing. Follow me to Jerusalem. It wasn't a big deal. Following God to Jerusalem wasn't a big deal. Why? Because he was following a trusted friend. A friend that he loved. A friend that he was talking to every day. A friend that he was reminded every day loved him. A friend that had proven again and again that he wouldn't abandon him. A friend that he was already close to. A friend that had proven himself. Purpose, practices, last one is principle. And I said this would be the shortest one because it's the simplest one. When all else fails, guiding principle for living for God. When all else fails, worship. The youth are over there wrapping up their summer series. Their summer series has been all about worship. And they've looked at worship from, from all different angles. Worshiping God through giving. Worshiping God through serving. Worshiping God through, through confessing sin. Worshiping God in daily life. Worshiping God through vocation. Worshiping God, yes, through music. Today, I think Caleb is wrapping up the series, Worshiping God as a Son or Daughter. But, but we know that through all of that, what are we doing? We're ascribing worth. worth. Worship is a contraction of worth-ship. With thoughts, with actions, with words, declaring that God is holy, righteous, beautiful, good, merciful, gracious, worthy to be praised with our lives. Some of you were expecting this to be number one. I said, purpose, your minds went Westminster Confession. Chief purpose of man is to glorify God and love him forever. Enjoy him forever. That's not wrong. 
We could have started there. But instead of going big to small, we're going small to big today. Purpose. It's unique. It's personal. It's specific. Not your purpose. Fall back in practice because those are things that we're all called to do. If something slips through practices, big overarching principle, worship. When in doubt, worship. When you're not in doubt, worship. Because at any given time, well, pause. Worship who? Worship God. Because at any given time, anything I'm doing, I'm worshiping. We're worshipers. We're made to worship at any given time. I'm either worshiping God or I'm worshiping not God. I'm either worshiping creator or creation. And usually I'm worshiping one specific part of the creation named Patrick. Want to live for God? Keep making the choice to worship him. Keep making the choice that worships him. Still figuring out your purpose? That's okay. Worship him. Still cultivating those, those practices, those spiritual disciplines in your life? That's okay. Worship him. Get in the habit of asking, who does this worship? Can I do this as unto the Lord? Can I watch this? Can I drink this? Can I smoke this? Can I go to this place? Can I tell this story about this thing that was entrusted to me? Can I spend more time over here and less time over there as unto the Lord? That, this, again, we're saying that these are Paul's ideas. That's Colossians 3.17. Whatsoever you do, do as unto the Lord. We're used to applying that to how we do things. Everything Jesus did, he did perfectly. So whatsoever you do, do as unto the Lord. Pursue excellence. Do your best. And that's fine. I mean, that's, that's true. That's good. But we can also apply it to the what as well as the how. I, I should do whatever I do is unto the Lord, but can I do this thing at all unto the Lord? Because there's some things that we can't. I can't watch porn unto the Lord. I can't gossip unto the Lord. I can't yell at my wife unto the Lord. I can't complain about my life unto the Lord. Can I do this and worship? If we're not sure, it's okay to ask. The key to knowing is asking. God, can I do this in your name? Would this be for your glory, or am I kidding myself? Is this for my glory, my safety, my security, my pleasure? See, the more we're in the habit of asking, then the more we're following this principle, is the more we're living for Christ. The more these spiritual practices will be blessing that burden. And the more knowing and pursuing our purpose will be freedom, not frightening. There was another story making the rounds back in the 90s. The Berlin Wall came down, the Iron Curtain fell. The first story was from Asia, but there was another story that came out from Eastern Europe. And it was another Bible study, also under the cover of darkness. Also held in a home where people went one at a time, two or three at a time, never more than that, so as to not attract attention. Where they'd huddle together by candlelight and study the word. And once again, a group of soldiers discovered that that study was happening. Once again, the door was kicked in and soldiers burst in, terrorizing the home church, the believers that were gathered together. And again, the soldiers brandished weapons and announced that anybody who refused to renounce Jesus would be killed. You can leave now. You can, you can declare that Jesus is no one, is nothing, and the Bible means nothing, and you can leave. And anyone who stays will be shot. And of course, people immediately fret, fled a few 
stalwart believers remained, at which point the soldiers closed the door, locked it, barred it, and said, we wanted to make sure that we were among true believers. Can we worship with you? If we're already living for Christ, we'll keep going when the world is against us. If we're already living for Christ, we'll keep going when some abandon us. If we're already living for Christ, we'll keep going when our friends say, this makes no sense to us. If we're already living for Christ, we'll keep going when it's certain to cost us. I don't know, maybe I was wrong 45 minutes ago. Maybe dying for Christ isn't easier after all. Because, because it occurs to me, if we don't start living for Christ now, if we're not in the habit of living for Christ, when the moment comes, maybe when presented with that choice to deny Christ or die for Christ, maybe we won't make that decision. Lord, Thank you for your word, and thank you for your spirit, and thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you that we are so, so not alone, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Brothers, sisters, a friend who loves us more than a brother. A friend who left so that the comforter could come. Comforter who indwells every believer, gifts every Christian, and together calls us family to love one another, to serve one another. Father, use us in one another's lives. Show us that part of our purpose. Show us what it means to build one another up in these truths, to encourage and exhort one another. that we may stand stronger and stronger for you as the world goes darker and darker. That our light would shine brighter and brighter. Our witness would be more and more steadfast. And your glory all the greater.